Welcome to episode number 49 of the Jackson Hole Connection, brought to you by Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small, friendly neighborhood market with a huge personality. Please visit the jacksonholeconnection.com slash jhm to learn more. I'm Stephan Abrams, the creator and host of the Jackson Hole Connection. I believe if you desire a truly fulfilling life, both personally and professionally, then you must be willing to find a connection with people outside of your everyday circle of influence. And this is why I created the Jackson Hole Connection podcast. Today's guest is Joe Albright, dude ranch operator, community volunteer, published author, and former global news correspondent. Joe will share with us today some fascinating experiences he had during his career as a news correspondent. We will hear about the presidential administrations he covered, some monumental global events he saw firsthand, and the importance of searching out information for your own knowledge. After spending much time of his life traveling the globe, Joe has reconnected to Jackson Hole through his family roots, which date back to the valley to 1916. Nowadays, Joe enjoys his life in Jackson Hole with his wife, Marsha, the outdoors, and friends. Joe, I was honored and very excited when you accepted my invitation to be a guest on the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you for coming today, and it's wonderful to see you. Nice to see you, too, and I am the one who's honored. Oh, well, thank you. Well, let's start off, Joe, with what brought you to Jackson Hole? What is your connection here? Stefan, uh, it's all the fault of my great aunt. Okay. Um, my great aunt came to Jackson in the year 1916, uh, as a dude at the Barbie Sea, where she fell in love with Wyoming and with the chief wrangler, who was a handsome cowboy named Cal Carrington. And together they somehow ended up getting a homestead for a piece of land up near the base of the Sleeping Indian, uh, which became known as the Flat Creek Ranch. And somehow that stayed in my family until uh, I was ready to retire as a, as a news correspondent in um, the year 1996, 97, 98. But my mother died and it was still in the family. And so the family had to decide who was gonna take over this ranch. And this was just at a time I was figuring out I've gotta retire from this crazy business of journalism. And so I ended up coming out to look at the ranch and we decided, yeah, that's gonna be our next part of our life. What a fascinating story and family history. Mm -hmm. And to know that you had that ex the opportunity to come out here because the history of your aunt, your great aunt here in the valley is, is spectacular. And that's a whole nother story, whole nother conversation at a different time. Okay. <laughs> so the Flat Creek Ranch, tell me a little bit more about where Flat Creek Ranch is and what it looks like. And is it remote or is it just right close to town? Well, it's a beautiful piece of land up near the base of the Sleeping Indian, and it's up one of the worst roads in Wyoming. <laughs> uh, it's only 15 miles from town, but it really takes a driver who really doesn't care about the bottom of their car to get up there um, because it busts a lot of U-joints. Uh, <laughs> so a 15-minute, a 15-mile drive takes about how long to get there? About an hour and a quarter. Okay, that gives a, a great perspective as far and as... And the first eight miles is a good road across the Elk Refuge. Um, so it's the last uh, six miles that you're going five miles an hour, 10 miles an hour if you're speeding. Okay. 
And so 1996, you retired. Yeah. Well, it was actually a little later than that. Okay. But I started getting thinking about retiring. In oh, okay. Yeah. All right. And so you and your wife checked out the ranch and said, we can do this. Well, we we didn't know what we were going to do with it, but uh, it, it was sadly in need of uh, being fixed up. And fortunately, we got to know a wonderful contractor who liked working uh, in the backcountry, Porgy McClellan, and he basically spent the next three or four summers taking these cabins, which were built in the 1920s, and bringing them up to date um, and making sure they didn't leak or weren't tilted. And so... It was probably in the year uh, 2001 that the ranch was pretty much finished, the rehabilitation process. And it stayed pretty well uh, up until the present. Everything looks pretty good up there. Excellent. Well, thank you for keeping such a historical dude ranch going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... It's only available in the summertime, correct? That's right. The uh, the government shuts down the road to the to the across most of the elk refuge, and then the national forest. It becomes that whole area around our ranch becomes sort of a wildlife refuge all winter. Fascinating, fascinating. Thank you. And you you said that you were retiring from being a newspaper correspondent. What age did you begin working in the world of reporting news? You know. Looking back on it, it seems I've been sort of a uh, Forrest Gump of journalism. Um, at the age of 22, I actually was covering the presidential election of John Kennedy. Um, and a couple of years later, as a Washington correspondent, I covered the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and at the age of 62, I was flying in an airplane with the, it was a helicopter with the 82nd Airborne Division as we were uh, flying into a Russian-controlled country called Kosovo in the in the NATO invasion of this uh, country in the former Yugoslavia. So, in between, I somehow managed to be present for and attempted to cover some of the great historical moments in those forty years. I don't know how it happened. And how many countries did your career take you to around the globe? Well, I was a foreign correspondent for about the last 15 years of my career, and I think I covered, I wrote stories with bylines from about 45 countries. Okay. And you traveled to every one of those countries? Well, to, yeah, right? to have a byline, yeah. Okay. And? Not that I knew much about them, but I certainly wrote about them. All right. And when traveling throughout your career and seeing how the world changed, what is something that stands out in your in your mind as far as the what you learned from people which always caught your thoughts? Mm-hmm. Most of my career, uh, the United States was locked in this Cold War with the Soviet Union. And so a lot of the stories I wrote had something to do with the, the, the after effects of or the impact of the of this Cold War so that when I would go to a country like Chad uh, in Africa, it was only because the United States were sending some missiles to Chad to offset the invasion by Libya, who was perceived as a Soviet. So the hook on that story was that it was a part of the struggle uh, between the Soviet Union and the United States. 
I happened to be present when the Berlin Wall went down in 1989, um, and in Moscow in 91 when the Soviet flag went down and the Soviet Union collapsed. Since then, the world has become much more confusing and, and spread out in a lot of different directions. And so the, the United States is no longer the dominant uh, country in the world as it was after 1989. Uh, now it's um, a multipolar world with China and India and Russia and United States, Britain, France, Europe, all uh, competing. And while you were covering the, the Cold War, what was going through your mind as a correspondent as far as what's going to happen? You know, I hate to think of myself as being able to uh, think about these things in a clear philosophical planned structure. Uh, like Forrest Gump, I just seem to turn up at the right place and do my best to cover that week's story. Mm -hmm. um, um, I spent a lot of time uh, just turning up and writing the best I could that week and then going on to something else. I don't look back on myself and having a great philosophical concept of the news. I just got there. You were in the right place at the right time. That was the idea when I was being a foreign correspondent. Mm -hmm. You had to, um, if you were in the wrong place, you wouldn't be on the front page or you wouldn't be satisfying your um, editor's desire to have a foreign correspondent and you weren't justifying the money they're spending on you. So you get there and you write the story. And what does it take to be a foreign correspondent? Um, a lot of luck. Uh, to tell you the truth, you have to sort of try to anticipate what's going to happen and that governs where you get assigned or where you assign yourself. Like the time we were skiing in Italy one day and we read something about uh, Libya and the problems between the United States and Libya. So we cut short our vacation in this, I'm talking about my wife, Marsha Kunstel and me, and we somehow got plane down to uh, Malta, then we got another plane to Libya and we got there just in time for the United States to drop bombs on Gaddafi's compound, and we were able to write about it. So it's a question of getting there. Wow. So you jumped on a plane, and away you go because you felt as though that you needed to be there. Yes. Okay. It was the next thing that was happening. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And that happened over and over. You know, the day I was in Rome... Um, the day the, uh, the Marine barracks in Beirut was bombed uh, and the day that uh, 241 Marines were killed in mm -hmm. 1983, again, I jumped on a plane. I got there in time to cover that particular horrible event uh, when they were still pulling bodies out of the barracks when I got there and in Beirut. I spent a fair amount of time in Beirut, um, so I knew a little bit about Beirut when I was headed there. Um, but I, same thing when... Sadat was assassinated uh, in 1981, and I was in Washington. Um, somehow jumped on a plane and got there to cover the... Uh, I was there because of the time difference, in time to file a first-day story and then cover the funeral where um, all these world leaders came to the funeral. But I, I 
somehow, Forrest Gump-like, I (laughs) managed to try to do the best I could to to cover all these wonderful stories that I never, you know, they seem to be pleased. And did you ever feel as though when traveling to cover some of these stories that you were in danger? Yes. Um, You sort of become addicted to danger if you're a foreign correspondent. Okay. Um, So, yes, I probably cover four or five wars. If not big wars, there were um, conflicts where people were shooting at each other with big guns. Um, Beirut, um, Chechnya, uh, the Gulf War was one, uh, you know, where actually I was, as they now call them, embedded with the troops when we were doing that, ended up in Kuwait City. So somehow, I spent a fair amount of time, even before, even before I was a foreign correspondent, in Washington covering military affairs, covering the Pentagon, covering the White House, covered four or five presidents. Were you a, a White House correspondent? Yes. You were. For which administrations? Uh, well, let's see. I covered Kennedy. I was there for the Kennedy. Um, uh, for the, I wasn't there for the assassination of Kennedy. I was, but during the Cuban Missile Crisis, I covered Nixon in 1968 when his campaign uh, resulted in his getting election. Uh, I covered him when he went to Europe for the first time. Um, Covered Reagan when he was elected. I covered Carter. Um, the day that Carter uh, went into the, it, the the Three Mile Island happened under Carter's administration in 1978. Okay. And I was the White House pool reporter that went with Carter into the control room of Three Mile Island that day when it was still a crisis. Um, I, I a lot of I had Forrest Gump like moments. What was that experience to? Be in there with the president while this nuclear meltdown is happening here on okay. U.S. soil. I had found myself, I guess, at the hardware store or somewhere, because I knew I was going to get this assignment, a dosim- dosimeter, and I was determined to find out how much nuclear radiation Carter was getting. And I was right next to him, so I was getting the same amount. And then we were flying back to the White House in a helicopter, and I had to get this pool report out, and I was trying to calculate the dosage, and I was very slow with my pool report, where my colleagues were mad at me because all they wanted to knew what did Carter look like, what, the yellow booties on his feet, and I was calculating with this dosimeter. It was actually a bad day. <laughs> did you feel as though that that was a, you were putting your life in danger being no, in, in such a facility? I did not feel that. Um, I, I somehow don't react. My, my wife tells me that I don't react to danger, mm-hmm. that I'm not fearful. Um, Are you an extreme athlete? No, no. <laughs> Just had to ask living here in Jackson. No. <laughs> Climbed the Brent Grand a couple of times. but Okay. I, I'm terrified of heights. I don't think I could climb the Grand, at least not in my mindset today. Um, you could do it. <laughs> Thank you. So you said that you covered several wars. Mm-hmm. Um, were you on the ground for Vietnam? No. Okay. Uh, no, at that time I did not. That's one I didn't cover. And what were you doing during that era? Raising children. Okay. Big responsibility. And I was a Washington correspondent um, during those day, years. 
covering you know day-to-day Washington stuff. And I was, uh, uh, I spent about a decade being an investigative reporter. All this doesn't seem to add up to one career, but that's what I was. Well, I think for me, talking to you and learning more, your career was reporting, but there's many subsets of that. Yeah. So correspondent for war, for the White House, for the military, or investigative mm-hmm. um, side of things. And, and also, you have penned uh, a few books, one by yourself and uh, two others with your wife, Marsha. In a way, each one of those was sort of a reaction to some sort of a journalistic setback of one kind or another. The first book was a, a biography of Vice President Agnew, focusing on the time before he became vice president, when he was a politician in Maryland. And that had been um, a project I was working on for the paper I was then working for. I was doing an uh, inquiry for Newsday. Um, But then somehow I got fired from Newsday uh, in about 1971 or something like that, 72. Um, And I had all these notes and So I just turned it into a book. That's how that first book happened. Um, The second book was about the Middle East, and we had decided that we'd had enough of gunfire and so forth, and so we came back to the United States in around 1986, something like that, um, and got a fellowship and so forth um, at MIT to study things. And it turned out that this was during the Intifada, the first Intifada in Israel, in the West Bank, um, and so we got on a plane and went to there. And even though we were um, sort of bouncing away from, we were thinking we we're going to go to Washington and cover easy things. Um, we ended up accumulating enough information to write this book about. Um, one valley in Israel, the history of it through time. To, because as our journalists, we had found that we didn't really understand the Israel-Palestinian thing enough to write about it. So now we dug into it deeply in that. And the third one, um, which was a story about a spy, uh, an American, an actual nonfiction story about an American spy at Los Alamos during World War II, was a case where we had done a lot of research when we were based at Moscow correspondence about this particular case, but we never got enough information to persuade our editors to run the story. Hmm. And so um, we dropped it, but we didn't drop the idea and we kept working on it. And finally enough information did surface to make it into a book. So those three cases were sort of an unplanned deviation and sort of a, a, again, Forrest Gump-like episodes in our lives that nobody would have planned. Mm -hmm. One of the books that really piques my interest is the title, What Makes Spiro Spiro Run? And that's about Vice President Spiro Agnew. Mm -hmm. And as I was saying in the pre-show, I wasn't born until after a lot of that happened. So, But it's still fascinating to me to know what has happened in our history. And I, I feel that we, I feel that the more that we as citizens know our history, the better decisions we can make in our current life, hopefully. Do you think for people to review some of what happened back 
during the Nixon administration with the Vice President Spiro Agnew would be important for people to know if they want to net, if they want to be able to make great decisions about where we are today in today's world? Well, let me just tell you a bit about the book. Um, I got interested in this guy um, because, so in 1968, he was picked out of nowhere to be the vice president. He was the county executive of Baltimore County, Maryland, for a while, and then he got to be governor of Maryland. And it struck me that he this is the most spectacular rise in politics in the history of the country. Um, and I just was interested in how he got there. So a lot of the book is about his political rise in Maryland um, and his land deals and his um, uh, close-to-the-line judgment about mixing politics and business as a county executive. It then gets him into the uh, vice presidency and um, it talks about his campaign in the midterm election in 1970. But its book is published before any of the um, information comes out about his actual uh, taking uh, bribes and things, so forth. So I, I don't want to propound any great theories. Of this, um, history is all worth knowing, but um, I know, I'm not sure I want to draw any connection with today's events and that one. Okay, fair enough. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I do remember listening or learning a little bit about Spiro Agnew and his transition from being in politics in Maryland and to being asked to be run on the ticket of Nixon to become vice president. And fascinating of how fast he went from just local state politics to he's now on the in the national level and in, in the international spotlight because he's vice president of the United States. Well, if somebody probably can get for 2 or $3 on on Amazon.com a copy of that book, if it still exists, but it'll tell you all that whole long story. It does exist. I looked at it before you and I sat down today. What's the price now? I saw one price at about um, $80, but I saw another price for $2. Yeah. So about 250 yeah, about two fifty is what probably what it's worth. <laughs> That's your book. Yeah, <laughs> it was forty years later, and it's still worth two dollars. That's worth something. So, you had a quite a drive to continue just going after the story. What was your passion? What was your motivation there to to keep doing what you did? Hmm. Well, it goes back a long way. Um, when I was in college as a sophomore, I was going to be. I wanted to be a physicist. Um, and turns out I wasn't very good at physics. Um, uh, not as good as I was on the school newspaper, the college newspaper. So somehow this, uh, I, I guess it's an instinctive thing, but you, you get this idea of a byline on the front page of the school newspaper. It drives you forward for the next 40 years. All from working at the school newspaper in the university. Well, then in Chicago, as a, a cub reporter covering the huge fire that uh, gets your name, byline in the paper on the biggest local story of the decade, um, there was a horrible story in Chicago when I was 21 or something, and just been hired, where 95 
children and nuns were killed in a fire called the uh, Our Lady of the Angels Fire. It's one of the worst fires in Chicago history. Somehow, it's as I mentioned uh, about danger, but being a journalist and and getting to the next story is addictive. I'm good about other substance addictions, but news addiction is an addiction, and I've got it. Is there a relationship of similarities or differences in journalism between what is practiced here in the United States and other countries? And how have you seen that developed over over the decades? I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. Um, what I would say is we happen to live in one of the few islands in the United States called Jackson Hole where they have a really good newspaper. Um, a lot of American newspapers uh, are very thin and uh, anemic these days because of the competition with the internet. Um, fortunately, we have a good one here, and if you'd read the pages of that newspaper, you'll see how young reporters are really doing a good job covering these big stories locally. Um, I have the sense that in Europe uh, and most parts of the world, it is sort of, uh, there, there are, are exceptions to this, but a lot of it is sort of state-sponsored journalism. Um, and uh, this is not true in Britain, and there, there are other exceptions, but a lot of it is sort of state-sponsored official journalism, of, and ours is not. So state-sponsored, meaning they're, the journalists are following more of what the state wants them to cover and in the in the message that want they, the state wants to be provided? Well, for example, the United States has uh, an information agency called the United States Information Agency. They publish radio all over the world. They publish some print documents. Imagine if the New York Times was like that or the Jackson Hole News was like that uh, where uh, you know, Pete Muldoon would tell them what they're going to publish in the paper the next day. That That is not part of our tradition in the United States, and it is in many other parts of the that I've covered in the world. Um, um, certainly in Russia and China, where I lived. Um, certainly um, in Beirut, it's different. They're, each faction has their own little newspaper, uh, and there are about six or eight, ten factions. Um, but we're lucky to have a press that is competitive and um, strong, even though papers like Seattle and Denver and Chicago and Boston are much weaker because of the, the hit of the internet uh, advertising and Facebook and have sucked away the, the economic basis of sort of the middle range newspapers in the United States. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the the top-rated newspaper, the top newspapers, the Times, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, are still strong, uh, and still doing wonderful journalism. And very local papers, like the our local paper here in town, are doing a wonderful job. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. We're going to take a quick break. Uh oh! Did you forget the milk and eggs again? Not to worry. Jackson Hole Marketplace is the place to stop just south of town. Looking for a new spot to grab breakfast for lunch on the go? Jackson Hole Marketplace is calling your name. Located four miles south of Jackson, 
Jackson Hole Marketplace has the friendly, knowledgeable team ready to help you find what you need. Stop in today for some soft serve ice cream and a quick hello. Visit thejacksonholeconnection.com slash JHM for more details. Do you want to talk about how you receive your news nowadays? I try to cover of uh, let my mind r- range around a, a bunch of different sources. I listen to uh, Rachel Maddow and MSNBC, but I also listen to Fox News. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read every day the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, um, Washington Post, a couple of blogs. What are some of the blogs that you read? Oh, I read Breitbart, uh, and I also read um, Daily Kos. So I try to span the uh, the difference. So, tell me, why do you span the difference like that? Because those are two extremes, and also thinking about the different papers that you're reading, and um, you're listening to Rachel Maddow, but then also listening to Fox News. You're one of the few people that I know, or one of the few people that I know that listens to such a and obtains information from such a broad spectrum. Oh, I'm not sure that's true. I'm sure there are a number of people, but it comes out of my journalistic um, instincts mm-hmm. that you want to hear both sides. Why is it important for you to know both sides? Well, because you get you have to make your own uh, judgment, and you have to hear both sides before you can do that. When you write a news, when you're doing an investigative story for a, a newspaper, you need to not the mistakes I've made in in reporting is generally not that the, the things I wrote were wrong, but sometimes I didn't listen to and bring in other factors. It's an error of omission rather than that I got the facts themselves wrong because there's a lot of facts. Mm-hmm. But you you do need to hear both sides, all sides. Yeah, I, I agree that it's important to, to hear and, and know all sides. But also when writing an article, it it's also has to be a challenge because you're only allowed so many words, columns, to get to send the message to the reader. Um, you know, I lived in sort of a golden age of journalism where we were allowed to write longer. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, when you were doing investigative pieces, you would write thousands of words. Okay. Um, and you therefore had more f- ability than we see today, except in a few papers like the New York Times, um, to write long-form journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. It's true that if you have a 400-word story, and I wrote a lot of 400-word stories, uh, it's difficult to get the whole picture. Mm-hmm. But you got to know the whole picture before you write those 400 words. Sure, yeah. So it, it's up to you as the investigative reporter, the, the journalist, to... Well, I wouldn't call a 400-word story an investigative story. No, no. Um, but when you are doing an investigative story, it's still up to you to, to obtain as much information as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And probably to cross-check it to ensure that it's accurate, what information you're being provided is accurate. Oh, that's a given, yes. Okay. And from your experience, um, what was something that you remember that just really moved you, that impacted you? Um, Probably the most important, most impact-making event in my life was the day I 
covered the release of Nelson Mandela from prison in South Africa. Um, my wife and I both were there. That's another case where we knew something was going to happen and we got there. I was there outside the prison when he came down that street and uh, later I got to know him some. Um, he took a, a trip in the following weeks, uh, a fundraising trip around the United States, half a dozen cities around the country, and I flew on his plane with him. And in, in the morning, He'd get up uh, and put on a Yankees cap so people wouldn't recognize him, and he'd walk around the streets, and I got to walk with him along with some other journalists. There's only a handful of journalists who were flying with him. Um, it was very moving. Um, Marsha, uh, my wife, um, got to be at the first little press conference he held at Bishop Tutu's house, I think it was the next day. And it was interesting how he showed this incredible lack of bitterness. Um, we went. We had covered some of the, of the bad days in South Africa when they had the state, state of the emergency, and where people were killing each other. And it was amazing to see how uh, the white um, Afrikaner president de Klerk and the black prisoner Mandela managed to come together and have a peaceful resolution to this. Crisis. It's never happened in, that I can think of since in the 40 years I was out on the trail. Uh, so this is probably the most moving thing that I've managed to experience. I cannot imagine what that felt like. Yeah. Um, but to know that you were there is is absolutely spectacular. Well, he I think um, appreciated the fact that I had written a story earlier about how his arrest in 1962 was actually the result of a tip-off from our CIA uh, to the South African police as to where he was. And this was quite a controversial story, but he somehow knew who uh, this strange paper in the United States sending a journalist, he, he knew about that story. So when you had the opportunity to walk around the city with him. What was his experience? Because he had been in jail for a long time. And now to walk around one of the largest cities in the world and you're following I remember Atlanta particularly and probably Los Angeles. Um, But we were not interviewing him. We were just chatting. Okay. You know, and and those... the. It was not an opportunity to get wonderful words. He was just wanting to talk about baseball or something like that. He just wanted to experience life. Yeah. Outside of four walls. Yeah. This was within two weeks of, I believe, of his release from prison. Mm -hmm. And did you see what it was like for him to experience how the world had changed so much? I can't say that I um, got these great insights into that. Um, I really was just there, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a moving memory for me, but I'm sure he doesn't remember much. Uh, he didn't remember much of that, but I did. What well, was important to you. Yeah. It was important to you. Joe, for people listening today, you've experienced and seen so much in life. You've written about so much in life. You've read so much in life. What could you share with people today to do, what action can people take to make today a little bit better? 
Boy, that's a tough one. You know, just love each other, get together, and don't hate. I think the, sometimes the simplest words mm-hmm. are the most moving words, and I appreciate that. Yeah, get together, love someone, and don't hate. And and I also value your perspective, how you look at news coming from all sides of viewpoints, so that way you can make your own decision and your own perspectives. Um, well, thank so. you, Jeff, and, uh, and I appreciate this um, chance to sit with you and talk. Well, it's been an I don't, honor. I don't talk about this journalism stuff much. Well, thank you for spending the time to talk about it today. Thank you. Have a great day, Joe. Bye. To learn more about Joe, the books he published, and his history, please visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com, episode number 49. I love hearing from my listeners and subscribers, so if you have feedback or suggestions, please send an email to me, connect at the JacksonHoleConnection.com. Please remember when you're in Jackson Hole to visit my friends at Jackson Hole Marketplace. This podcast could not be created without the support of my wife, Laura, my editor, Michael Morey, my musical director, Luke Taylor, and my marketing team, Anna Hoffman. I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to seeing you back for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.